cliffcentral.com. For anyone listening, they sit down and draw themselves. The benefit to them is what? The benefit is that it's a meditative experience. So it's an active process. If you have to sit down and try and meditate, sometimes it's hard. Our minds are so busy. So it's giving you something very practical, very active that's, that lets you access a meditative experience. And why this is important is because it activates parts of the brain that help you with regard to understanding yourself. Hey guys, welcome to the Brain and Brand Show. I'm Timothy Maurice and it's a pleasure to bring you the following brain-boosting conversation in line with the theme of this show, which is to take you on a journey between neurons and narratives. Every story lives in a brain and once you understand yours and other people's brains better, you can increase your chance of influencing and impacting the world. And you can apply the ideas in this episode to your individual as well as your organization's journey. In a moment, you'll meet Dr. Kirti Rancho, a neurologist and one of the kindest and most intelligent humans I've ever come across. Kirti is an Atlantic Fellow for the Equity and Brain Health Global Brand Health Institute. At the top of her agenda is to focus on protecting your memory and boosting your brain health. With all that we are experiencing in the world, I reached out to her and asked her to give us three interesting and delightful ways to boost our brain's ability to be more creative, resilient, and of course, just to have more capacity to take on the new evolving world we're all grappling with. Meet Dr. Rancho. Welcome to the Brain and Brand Show. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Before we dive in, share with us a little bit about you and your background. Well, as you said, I am a neurologist. Um, my focus currently is on how to keep the brain healthy. So how to reduce specific illnesses like dementia. And beyond that, how to function better in the world, how to cope with the stresses, how to enjoy life, which all involves um, improving brain function. You've got a global view. You've not only lived in South Africa, right? Um, I finished a fellowship last year in um, Ireland and have worked in the UK, but that was many, many years ago, and have traveled quite a bit. So yes, my view is global. And um, it has actually been very rewarding to have this global view as I approach different strategies to promote brain health. You could have studied just about anything in the world. Why neurology? Neurology, I made the decision when I was quite young. What had actually happened was um, when I studied medicine, neurology was actually one of the subjects that I needed extra time to familiarize myself with it. And so I spent an extra month. Uh, we get... Um, in fifth year, we have we do an elective, and I spent that time in the neurology department at Krasani Baragwanath Hospital. And as I did this, I realized I really love this. I was completely engaged with the work. It's a very analytical field. Um, yeah, there's a certain magic to neurology, actually. So that's how I got into it. You know, many times people fall in love with concepts because they're trying to figure out their own brain. Did you look in the mirror one day and go, I'm a little crazy. Let me study this to figure myself out. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. But as I've gotten older, I have realized that I've used a lot of what I've learned in neurology to justify a lot of my behaviors, particularly bad decisions I've made. So I am <laughs> at this point able to justify choices, uh, relationships. Yes. I can give you procrastinating. You, I can give you the biological reason for all of this. Yeah. You've got to give me one thing that you have 
you are now okay with because you understand neurology? <laughs> My favorite actually was understanding what happens to the brain when you fall in love. Because this just set the tone in terms of um, accepting the decisions I had made. So when you fall in love, what do you think happens to your brain? Which parts of the brain don't yeah, work well, as well? So I can imagine, you know, from my own sort of kind of research that the regions of the brain, such as the amygdala, where the emotions start firing, where all the sort of chemicals and hormones from the adrenaline gland flood your body, and then maybe it overrides your sort of prefrontal cortex so you don't think clearly. <laughs> That's precisely it. So functional MRI images have shown that the parts of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, responsible for reasoning, judgment, uh, critical thinking switches off in that initial phase of romantic love um, and the anxiety mm. part of the brain. So part of the amygdala switch off in the, in the romantic stages of love. And that just made so much sense when I read it. I was like, oh, wow, this is biological. It's not me. <laughs> <laughs> so you've given yourself a break for not thinking critically while you're in love. Exactly. <laughs> it's justified all those decisions I've made. Let's jump into today's conversation. Over the last year or so, the world has just been turned upside down and people are looking to turn the page. People are looking to add more beauty to their life. They want to boost their brain and really sort of recharge themselves. And you've got some methodology, some systems to be able to do that. Can we explore three of them? Sure. All right, let's, let's dive in. Let's start with number one. What is number one? What is one thing people can do right now to sort of recharge, add sort of more capacity and more value back to their brain? I think since we were speaking about love, let's go back to love, actually. Uh, okay. So, yes, there's a certain dysfunction that happens in your brain when you're falling in love. The idea of being loved and supported, of feeling that love and support actually physically changes your brain structure. And what it does is it switches on a gene that increases plasticity, which is the ability of the brain to grow and adapt. And it increases plasticity in the memory and mood part of the brain, the hippocampus. So actually feeling loved and supported helps your mood, helps your memory, helps your ability to function through all the challenges that you have to function. What can you do practically for that? I'm not sure about you, but I have retreated a little bit given the lockdown and I think it's important to reach out and maintain connections and saying it is not easy enough it has to be very practical it has to be write a list write a name make sure you call somebody make sure you connect send a thank you card oh wow okay so by physically reaching out to people you are activating the hippocampus you're activating the connecting part of the brain Exactly. But it's not just the connecting part of the brain. It's actually the part of the brain that elevates your mood and it's strongly linked to memory. Mood and memory are strongly linked. This is what I mean. And it's not just connecting. It's feeling loved and supported. So if I connect with random people, um, as we often do in, in terms of many of our engagements, if I join five Zoom meetings with strangers, it probably is not going to have the same impact as joining a small community where I can discuss my day in detail, where I do feel loved and supported. So it's a very important component of the connection is to actually feel loved and supported by the people you connect with. 
I see. For people who live alone, they can still receive this benefit through a call and the emotion that's translated over the call, right? Definitely. It can be a call. It can be a supportive letter, you know, via email. It's about maintaining those connections. And sometimes it's not even the actual connections. It's an understanding that you loved and supported. So sometimes even if you are alone, but you understand that you're not alone in the situation, it changes everything in terms of how we interact with the world. Got it. So just to does be clear, if you, yeah, it does. And if you do not have this, let's, let's sort of unpack. If you do not have this sort of understanding of what a connection that you're connected, that you're supported and so forth, what happens inside of the body? Inside of the brain, what happens is that your mood is affected. So that sense of isolation, loneliness, um, the understanding or the feeling that you're actually going through all of this alone, ends up creating a negative loop. And again, for some people, and for many people, I don't want to generalize. There are some people who cope very well by themselves. But for most of us, we do need an element of support. And that support allows us then to transcend some of the difficulties and challenges that we have. And not just transcend the difficulties and challenges that we have, but how to thrive in certain situations as well. Okay, awesome, cool. So number one is the connect and trust effect. And basically connect with people, demonstrate some level of trust and backing, and your brain starts to be activated, your entire nervous system starts to respond, and you'll feel a sense of well-being, right? Yes, a sense of well-being, and yeah. Number two. Number two is something that I'm quite passionate about, and that's the power of art. It's actually all arts, art, music, dance, storytelling, and other art forms. But I'm going to focus a little bit more on visual art for this discussion. Okay, super. Let's go through them. So visual art has a profound impact on the brain. Do you visit galleries? Or I do. do you paint One draw? of my favorite things. Yeah, I paint, draw, and I visit galleries. What do you think happens when you visit a gallery or when you're drawing? What, what What's the process that you think about? So. It's all inspiring. I feel myself sort of coming alive, you know, when I walk into a space because for me, I'm looking for, I'm looking for a connection between the aesthetic and a particular emotion. And um, that's even before I know the history. You know, I know that with art, when you are sold a particular history, that also can impact you. But I'm literally just looking for the connection between you know, just being open to what happens on the, from the aesthetic, from the, you know, the, my general sort of experience. Well, you have answered some of those, uh, the, what I've answered, asked actually. So it's not that you don't know. It's why you've actually responded to the artworks. You're having a conversation with the artist in a sense or with a piece of art at least. What happens when we view or create art is a part of the brain well, the default mode network becomes activated. This part of the brain is the same part of the brain that's active when we daydream or when we actively meditate. Okay. Now, isn't that interesting that it's the same part of the brain in terms of visual art creation and in terms of meditation? Similar, not completely the same. Wow. And this part of the brain is responsible for autobiographical memory, the way we relate to self and others, 
and our ability to understand ourselves and others, which in essence then helps us to problem solve with regard to self. The challenges that we have that are not in a book, that are not our, you know, what we need to work out for a business plan, but how do we navigate challenges that affect us? How do we find focus if we need focus? How do we find creativity if we need creativity? And this part of the brain, in some sense, helps with that. Um, there was oh, wow. a wonderful exhibition called Stars of the North at the Bits Art Museum. It was many, many years ago, and it focused on sculptors from Limpopo. And the biography of one of the artists uh, was Putuma Sioka. And his biography has just stuck with me, and I tell the story to many, many people, so you may have heard it before. Putuma Sioka was having recurrent nightmares. And because of these recurrent nightmares, he went to see a traditional healer in the village. And the traditional healer recommended that he start sculpting. Now think about how profound that advice is. Because you're wow. making something subconscious or unconscious tangible. And you're using a process that is activating all these neural networks to help you to problem solve what is causing these nightmares. And I just thought it was such profound advice. So basically, you're taking these deeper kind of embedded unconscious kind of networks and they are coming through through the actual art process. Exactly. And I think a lot of art has been used like that traditionally in lots of traditional cultures throughout the world, actually. So you have the art in galleries, but a lot of the art that we have is in our homes, in our temples or churches, in our communities, on our city streets. We may not call it art, but it still has an impact. Okay, so Google says art is the expression. And what we'll do is interrogate this and apply your own sort of understanding of art, okay? Mm -hmm. And then maybe we can we can email Google and they'll update it and say a neurologist said <laughs> you should add this. <laughs> so Google says art is the expression of application of human creative skill and imagination typically in a visual form such as painting or sculpture, producing works to be appreciated primarily for their emotional power. So in terms of created for the emotional power, in part that's true, but I think also that it is a subjective experience. Okay. And I don't think that they've only been created for this. So there's a lot of art forms that are useful. And oh, I think I that's where I would potentially disagree, particularly art forms that have been used in community settings throughout the world. Uh, I see. So it can, we can add to this a form such as painting a sculpture, producing work to be appreciated for utility and use inside of culture and so forth and for their emotional power. Yes, precisely. <laughs> So we're going to update. We're, we're going to update Google. Yeah, we're going to update Google. Uh, awesome. This is wonderful. This is wonderful insight. And I think what I like about your point is that anything that has sort of utility, anything that has value in and around us, we can engage it and it will have some sort of subjective or some sort of power and influence over us in a way that can help us navigate the world, right? And the second step in terms of making it practical is to start drawing. Because again, I want to take it away from what is in a gallery or what's perfect or what evokes emotion. 
the actual process of drawing is quite therapeutic without meaning to be. So, and if you're just drawing for yourself, and if you take five apples and you say, today I'm going to draw these five apples or one apple, and you spend three to five minutes doing that, and just observe what it actually does to you in terms of your mood, your attention, your focus, and make a decision as to whether you'd want to do it again given that. So it doesn't have to be complicated. Okay, so let's just say this. Everyone listening, I want you to go out and first of all, suspend the idea that you don't think you're an artist. That's number one, right? And then yes. grab some sort of notebook or a paper where you can call it your um, expression, um, your just sort of your general sort of outlet, your expression notepad, and just kind of whatever comes to mind. What would you recommend? How will you sit down and start it? Especially if you don't see yourself as an artist. What are some practical things to do? Just sit down and hopefully what happens? I think the first thing is to let go of the idea that it should look like the object that you're trying to draw, right? So let go of that idea. It does not have to. Um, Start with something simple and then set a time limit and start. One of the things that stops many of us from trying things is that we are quite busy and to invest time in anything, we would discourage ourselves from doing it. So if you're restricted to say, I'm going to start, I'm going to do this for five minutes and that's it. It doesn't have to look like the apple that I'm trying to draw and start. And you will be amazed, just like I say, not firstly that it will actually look a lot like the apple, but secondly, if you observe yourself and your thought process and how you feel before and after doing this exercise, I think you will be quite surprised. Again. It's going to work for some people. And it may not work for you on the first time, and I would suggest repeating it. And if it really makes you unhappy, you don't have to persist. You know, we're not all the same, but a large number of people are going to respond very positively to this. When I first met you, the first thing we met over coffee, and the first one of the exercises you asked me to do was to draw myself. Tell me yes. why you asked me to do that. For, for several reasons. One of the things is that it's very challenging, right? And initially, when I tell you to draw yourself, what do you think? There's a little bit of anxiety that comes through. There's a little bit of, oh my God, what, how am I going to do this? What is she going to think about it? Yeah, I thought and you were crazy. And as people, <laughs> <laughs> as people start drawing, because it's so complicated and complex, they get very, very absorbed in it. I'm not sure if that was your experience. It was. Right. And one of the most magical things that I've realized from observing people doing this is that everyone does draw a representation of themselves. It may not be a good picture, but for example, when you drew you, you you definitively did not draw an image that looked like me. There are more features Mm. there that look like you. Even if you don't have drawing experience, this happens throughout. But in the process also, what happens is because you're activating these networks, people are more aware of the flow that happens in this drawing process and the understanding of yourself because you're drawing yourself. So the, the value to, I just want to make this clear. I know that I can become quite technical (laughs) when I, Start speaking about the brain. So 
for anyone listening, if they sit down and draw themselves or an apple or anything, the benefit to them is what? Let's make that simple for people. The benefit is that it's a meditative experience. So it's an active process. If you have to sit down and try and meditate, sometimes it's hard. Our minds are so busy. So it's giving you something very practical, very active that's, that lets you access a meditative experience. And why this is important is because it activates parts of the brain that help you with regard to understanding yourself. And that's important because you understand then what's good for you and how to make decisions to help you going forward. The other important thing that um, both observing or participating, so creating or observing art, is that it does improve psychological resilience, so our ability to cope with our stresses. Because no matter what, we are going to have stressful life events, we are going to have stressful situations, and it's one of the activities that actually increase psychological resilience. Okay, got it. That's very clear. Mm -hmm. And we need that big time right now. All right, what is your final exactly. tip? I want to focus more on the aspect of spending time in nature. Okay. So um, it's, again, very, very interesting research. And, you know, again, such common sense research that sometimes I've, you know, all the stuff that I've been reading is like, oh, it's what people were doing. It's what we've stopped doing, and we're going to have to restart to get back to a space of being healthy. That's why we have these podcasts. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> so people can listen and go, oh, I'm reminded of what I'm supposed to be doing. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, really, I think a lot of it was just, it's simple, it's practical, and for some reason what is simple has become complicated because of the choices we're making currently in terms of our lifestyle. So spending time in nature, does it have to be complicated? Is it going for your run in the morning? Is it going for a walk in the garden? Is it growing a bunch of flowers? Like it doesn't have to be complicated. And again, has such a profound impact in terms of the way we heal, in terms of the way we cope with stress. So there was a very interesting study that looked at people who exercise in a gym and people who did their exercise outdoors in a park. And what they found was the people who exercised outdoor in a park surrounded by trees and birds and sunlight had a better ability to cope with the stresses. So, you know, those negative thoughts that sometimes just run around in this little loop in your head, just over and over again. People who exercised in nature were able to handle those thoughts and not suppress them, but they stopped. And so you weren't tormented by the bad decision you made in earlier in the morning, etc. And I'm not sure about you, but I know sometimes we get into those negative loops and it stops us from going forward. You know, what's interesting is um, as you're speaking about this, I'm thinking about the time sometimes when I wake up in the morning, if I wake up and I've got extreme pressure from a client or I'm dealing with some sort of deep challenge, whether it's family or whatever, once I get outside and I start going, it feels like that that stress-related sort of thought or an idea is, is sort of being channeled out of me. And and I think that's what you're referring to is by being in nature, nature is is engaging your cells and delighting your cells in such a way 
that the brain kind of starts to filter it out and different thoughts start to come in. Is that is that what you're saying? In essence, yes. Yeah, so you don't have those negative thoughts. Yeah, just circling around your brain about what you did wrong and what you didn't do and how you should do this and which I think we all have at some point and we all it's it's also an important part of the process in terms of how we problem solve. But when it overtakes all our time and energy and stops us from moving forward, that's when it becomes a problem. All right. So step number three is engage nature. And uh Yes. Engage me. So step number one is, is seek out connection and trust. Step number two is participate in art, engage art. Step number three is connect with nature. Exactly. For me, what I would like people to do is to incorporate and design this into their life. What I'm realizing is that you can listen to a podcast like this, but if you don't immediately sit down and go, I'm going to put this in my calendar. I'm going to find space for myself. I'm going to invest back in myself by designing this into my actual life. And I'm going to do it intentionally in a way to know that it's going to boost resilience. It's going to create additional capacity. It's going to relax me. It's going to give me more creative command so that I can engage my work and my colleagues and just fundamentally start turning the page in a way where I have a bit more command over my faculty, right? Exactly. Self-awareness is a very, very important part of this, as as you've been describing it. Part of that, so yes, write it down, make a commitment to it, but also use the time to understand what impact it's having on you. So as you've mentioned, when you went for your run and you found this coffee shop, you're very aware of the impact it had on you. And do that for other activities in your life as well and find simple, practical ways to incorporate that into your life. So if you only have 10 minutes, make it six minutes so that you don't find the excuse not to do it. <laughs> Keep it simple. <laughs> All right. Before, before we go, I want to know what is one of your hacking tips? One of the sort of shortcuts that you've learned as a neurologist to help keep you alive and alert. If I can encourage uh, people to do one thing, I would say start drawing, start drawing badly, invite people to draw badly with you and keep doing it. I think I'm going to take you, I'm going to take that challenge on and maybe you and I can even get a few listeners and, you know, share some of what we're drawing and engaging and create another community online for the explicit purpose of what you've shared so much. And I really appreciate you so much for your work and how you deliver your work. You offer, are you Thank offering you. courses online? Um, if you are, how can people reach you and find out more about your work? I am offering courses online. My website is um, www.memorability.co, so just .co. And I will also be having a series of talks that will start on the 21st of July with artists, poets, musicians on using our cultural heritage to support brain health and healthy aging. So I'll send you details of that as well. Thanks so much, Kirti. I appreciate all the research and work that you're doing to make sure our brains stay healthy. Remember to go to her page, www.memorability.co. But before you go there, 
rate us and drop me a comment and do share this episode with someone you care about. Stay healthy, stay strong. Until next time. Cliffcentral.com